Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Claire Diderer on her new book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Claire Diderer is the author of Love and Trouble and Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. A book critic, essayist and reporter, She's a long-time contributor to the New York Times and has also written for the Atlantic, Vogue and Slate. And today we're here to talk about Claire's latest book, which is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Claire, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this book originally started out as an essay. So tell us, first of all, what the inciting incident for that essay was. Yeah, uh, I was working on my last book, which was called Love and Trouble, and it was uh memoir about growing up in the 1970s and 80s in this kind of culture of sexual predation that, for whatever reason, flourished then. And it was about my experiences as a girl in that world. And um, it was sort of grim subject matter. So I took really experimental forms to tell the story. Uh, It's just sort of played around with different ways of telling the story. And one of the ways was an open letter to Roman Polanski. And it's a memoir, but like, clearly, I did not know Roman Polanski. I was just using him as a kind of totem figure or kind of uh, uh, almost like a straw man of what a predatory man of that era was like. This was based on his uh, rape of a 13-year-old girl. I wrote a lot about him and researched a lot about him. I read the girl's deposition. I, I mean, I really learned a lot about the trial. And so when I was done writing the book or almost done, I found that I knew so much about Polanski. And yet I was sort of staggered to discover that I still wanted to watch his films. I had been a film critic and I had, you know, had studied uh, film studies in college. And I was, Polanski was incredibly important to me. I love his work. And so there came this moment where these two things kind of met, where I both knew his biography and really identified with his victim. And at the same time, I found I was still in love with the work. And this seemed to me to be a real problem. And I decided to write about it. Now, I'm I'm roughly the same age as you. I grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, also did film studies at university, and so was a big fan of the work of people like Roman Polanski, but also much more so, which we'll talk about in a little while, Woody Allen. And I was you know, doing cultural studies, and it was the point then, I guess, where things were starting to change. 
and like sort of postmodern criticism was starting to come in and post-colonial criticism. But at the same time, there was still a, a sort of shibboleth that a critic needed to be objective. You were to look at the work and the author itself should be ignored as much as possible. Going right to the end of this book, there's a there's a fantastic section on Miles Davis, or particularly on um, an essay by Pearl Clage called Mad at Miles, which is about as objective a piece of criticism as it's possible. So, sorry, it's about <laughs> as subjective a piece of criticism as it's possible to get. So let's talk about this idea of why we were supposed to be objective about art. Yeah, I mean, I think that some of it is based on a certain moment in history. I think some of it has to do with postmodernism, but I think some of it reaches a little further back in time, at least in America, I can't speak to your experience, uh, to the new critics who were writing in, you know, the kind of mid 20th century. And their approach was exactly what you just said, to kind of take the text on its own terms and free it from any biography of the maker of the text, right? So there's a way in which you're supposed to entirely forget this author and his existence. And then that continued in sort of different forms in postmodernism. You know, there's a different way of approaching that. But I, I think it's really interesting. I write about this in the book a bit that to some degree, this way of reading came about because of a material circumstance that the new critics found themselves in, which is that they were at these major big American universities where there were no primary texts to look at, right? So suddenly kind of the historicity surrounding an author could become less important and you could just focus on the text and sort of turning a, um, a necessity into a virtue is how I see what they were doing. And I think also, and you do sort of allude to this in the book as well, we can't avoid now looking back that there's another major, even more simplistic way of looking why they would have thought like that. And it was probably because they were all men. Right. So I think that that's a really central idea to this book is the invisibility of the subject in a specific kind of male criticism. So you have sort of, you have a white male usually writing the thing or making the film or making the piece of art. You have a white male critic and then you have a white male audience. And at no point in that kind of pipeline does subjectivity become apparent because there's no there's no introduction of the idea that I am different from you, right? You you don't see your own historical, racial or gendered circumstances because it's just this perfect flow from ideal maker to ideal audience without any idea of subjectivity stepping in. And it's only when a female critic or a female reader or a female viewer or a person of color steps into that dynamic and says, um, I have some thoughts about this work from my specific point of view. And then, you know, it's only at that moment that subjectivity is perceived, right? Because there's this sort of idea that you are just approaching the work subjectively. And there's no concept that that original exchange between maker and artist, that that's actually a, a subjectively defined exchange as well. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I think as well, I mean, the other thing that was, you know, something that was absolutely bread and butter to me when I was, you know, a teenager and in my 20s and obsessed with film was, you know, French film criticism and, and the idea of like the auteur theory, mm. which again, now thinking back, there's a sort of weird hypocrisy about the idea that on the one hand, we're supposed to elevate, and we'll talk later on about the idea of the genius. This also is, is a similar part of that same argument. But we're supposed to elevate this one mind as being the directive force behind this particular film. But at the same time, we're supposed to ignore that person 
when actually looking at the film. This seems to be a contradiction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, a tour theory is a very, you know, it's a it's not a theory. I mean, it's an idea that there is a central there's a central sort of figure at, you know, that it's valorizing and lifting up the director above all else. And then that becomes this kind of way of reinforcing the idea of great man alone creating the work, right? That he's isolated. The auteur theory itself, I kept turning to it as a young critic, as a young film critic, trying to find theoretical underpinnings to help me write my own criticism. But all I really found was this central sort of tentpole figure idea being reinforced over and over. And I think that this idea of the great man alone in the room is so useful for, (laughs) you know, it's so useful for developing this, this really specific idea of a genius that sort of allows this one figure to do whatever he wants because he holds all the artistic power and all the artistic cards, right? So it creates more opportunities for him. It also strikes me as sort of self-defeating in the way that now we're in this situation where we're having this conversation about, or we will, let's have this conversation about whether or not we should watch Chinatown anymore. And yet when we say that, one can only think, you know, well, what about the poor person who did the costumes? You know what I mean? What about the cameraman? What about all the great acting performances that are in that film? Why do we have to look at it through the lens of the child rapist? Yeah, I really love that. I like how the um, what you're saying points out the way that auteur theory and lifting up of a central figure actually makes it so it's harder to look at the work as a whole as something that we can kind of reckon with as viewers or readers. I think that's really useful. This book is subtitled A Fan's Dilemma. It's not called Monsters a Critic's Dilemma, although you do (laughs) talk about critics. And obviously, biography, the biography of the creator, whatever art form that is, is something that's way more central to the fan's experience than it is to the critic's experience. And I think that has, I mean, presumably the answer to this is the internet but you know that seems to be something that has just gets more and more so as 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 time goes by so let's talk about how biography has come to be preeminent yeah i mean i think that you can just sort of throw your hands up and say the internet but there are longer and more interesting answers and i i also think that like the interior experience of the person who is the fan or the consumer of art is complex and is in a in a really complicated dynamic with the internet and there's a lot going on there i think that for me i'm you mentioned we're the same age i'm 56 and when i was growing up you know biography by no means played the same role right like it was very it was very hard to know anything about makers of art you could buy a book an actual biography but those were thin on the ground about contemporary artists or musicians that you might love. And you had to really seek out this information. It's true we were living in a, in a mass media era, but there wasn't this sort of signal change where suddenly biography was everywhere. Because in fact, biography and the internet are almost synonymous. I mean, the internet is built on biography. It's, it's you know, social media is our own biographies, and then we're consuming biographies of other people all the time. And it it becomes this almost atmospheric quality where you can't not know things about people. And this puts the audience member or the fan in a really sometimes, you know, we're sort of forced into this position of knowing things about the maker of the work, even if we don't want to know it. Even if we were to decide 
that we were going to engage with all work sort of on this rubric of I am going to separate art from artist. We can't choose to not know. The not knowing is no longer really an option. And so this involuntary nature of our engagement with biography is what creates this dilemma for lover of the work. And I was, you know, this book really grew out of an interest in what happens then. And in many ways, the book is meant to describe that experience rather than prescribe what we should do. I'm 52 in a month's time, so only a little younger. But um, I grew up, you know, in the, as I said, in the 70s and 80s, and I would get, as you talk about in the book, I, you know, I would get my information about culture from, um, you know, from Melody Maker or The Enemy or from Sight and Sound magazine. And so, yeah, so in, in a lot of ways, it was a lot more difficult to find information about personalities. On the other hand, the person when I was, you know, 19 years old, there was one person that I was entirely obsessed with. And that was Woody Allen. And I <laughs> loved the work. Obviously, I, I, I adored his films. But it, more so, as you talk about in the book, you know, I thought I was him, you know, he, he really was somebody that represented me at that time in my life. And there's a whole period of years where Manhattan is my absolute favourite film in the world. And I saw that film when I was, you know, 17, 18, 19 years old. So basically at the same age that the character Tracy is in the movie. And it was not in any way, I was not in any way unaware that what this person in this film, having a relationship with that woman who was my idol, was doing was weird and creepy but you know to me he was he was a filmmaker that was making a film where you know all of the characters in that film are sort of assholes to one degree or another but they're all sophisticated I was sort of seduced by that sophisticated idea of sort of you know the Upper East Side New York intellectuals and all that and yeah it's only then years later when it turns out that you know he's doing the same thing as the character in the film that suddenly you think hang on a minute you know, this this is, and it's like, there's absolutely no way you can disentangle the personality from the art in this situation, as far as I'm concerned. I, I can't even understand how I'm expected to do that. And, you know, you talk in the book about being castigated by, you know, male friends when you say that, you know, you're having real trouble watching Manhattan because it's impossible to detach those two things. Well, I, I have so many questions for you. I mean, I think that one of the things that sort of I don't get into a huge amount in the book, but I think one of the things you bring up about Manhattan that's so fascinating to me is the way that it's almost a guide to how to live, which I think is part of why particularly young people are so susceptible to its charms. I mean, there's there's a way in which Woody Allen is, you know, it's almost creating this ideal, as you say, sort of New York intellectual life and showing you all these markers of it so that you can try to figure out if your own life could fit in this mold or if you could build a life that could kind of be like this. And there's some ways, you know, in which I think Woody Allen, in, in particularly in this era of his work, is almost making a guidebook for his younger self of how to be. It, it's sort of like he's training himself. If he could only send this back in time, then when he was a younger man, he could have been more sophisticated as he becomes later. And so I do think, I don't know, this isn't super germane to what you're saying, but I was fascinated that you brought this up. I think that there is a 
there's something really special about these films. And you think about the work of the production designer and, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this team of people that are creating this world that you want to enter and live inside. And in many ways, it's a very cozy and beautiful world. So it's not just watching this great film that's, you know, speaking to you in these important ways. It's also wanting to be Alan, wanting to, you know, you're sort of identifying with him because he portrays himself as powerless, but you're also trying to be part of what he's made. Do you think that was your experience? Entirely. And I think, and even not even just this film, this film, which was to me like the sort of his masterpiece and the absolute apogee of his more sophisticated stage. But I would watch the, you know, the the older, funnier ones. And <laughs> he would, you know, this is exactly my relationship with him. I'd, wa- I'd be watching this zany film and then he'd make some reference to like Fellini or something. And then I would go off after that and and again this being in a time when you've got to go and find a video store to rent from you couldn't get anything off the internet you know i would then spend the next year trying to watch as many Fellini films as i possibly could that was that was he was like a mentor in that sort of way you know and so yeah so i then absolutely felt personally let down by him by the events of the next decade or so but of course, then the question is, you know, my I now and and you you also refer to the you you also say this in the book yourself. But like my take on that now is, in a lot of ways, well, good job he hasn't made a decent movie for thirty years, eh? <laughs> and so I think a lot of, again, a lot of the things, a lot of the ideas in this book, a lot of the people that have been deemed monsters, often there's a question of taste. One of the people you talk about in this book is David Bowie, who is another massive hero of mine, who has some sort of unsavoury items in his past. But then in the UK, for instance, there's a pop star here called Gary Glitter, who was big in the 1970s and, you know, subsequently was added as a paedophile and has been in prison various times and has come out and has reoffended and what have you. And like, you wouldn't buy a Gary Glitter record now. You You wouldn't even think twice about doing that. But that's mainly because he's bad, not necessarily right. because he's a paedophile. Right. It's There's just no that they're bad. Right. And so to what extent can you get away with your behavior if you're actually good at your right. art? Right. Well, that's sort of the core question of the book, right? You have on the, you're sort of balancing these things of, on the one hand, you have this work that is, can either be defined as irrefutably great or, or maybe a more useful term is beloved, Right. And then on the other hand, you have this crime. And if the work, there is no dilemma with Gary Glitter, right? There's there's no central problem. And I mean, I'm sure he has his very hardcore fans. But the problem comes when there's this really intense love around the work. And whether or not it's great is something I'm less interested in. I'm less interested in sort of authorized ideas of who is the great artist. And I'm more interested in your experience you're describing when Woody Allen is not just someone whose work you believe to be a masterpiece, but it's you're identified with him, you love his work, and it's it's central to your being, right? And that's why the really crucial moment in the writing of this book was when I read the essay you mentioned at the beginning of this interview, uh, which was titled Mad at Miles by Pearl Clegg. And she's a Black writer who was writing about her love of Miles Davis. And she was sort of in love with his music. And and not just in love with it, but weaving it into her days, right? The way that music really works, where your sort of eras of your life become defined by an artist. Like you mentioned Bowie, there's eras of my life defined by different Bowie albums, right? Not even just one particular artist. And so Pearl Clegg is writing about how she fell in love with Miles Davis and how it was, you know, different 
aspects of kind of blue were woven into her marriage, her divorce, her dating, all these things. And then she finds out, I mean, from Miles himself talks about it, about his abuse of women. And the piece goes on from there to just kind of, she goes on to just really express her rage. I mean, you can tell the the piece itself, but it's mad at Miles. She leads with emotion. And that sort of anger and that reckoning doesn't come without the love. And so this book that I wrote, you know, when I thought about what Clegg was saying, she was talking about her own experience of rage and her own experience of love. And it made me, there were a lot of things that essay taught me, but really pushing all her chips in on the love and allowing herself to express that helped me see that What often happens in this dialogue is that we focus on one side or the other, sort of the greatness of the work or the badness of the crime. But the the problem lies in the in the love of the work. And so she sort of gave me permission to explore that, to explore the subjective experience that is individual to each person of the engagement of the work and allow that to be important. Allow, you know, we use the word taste, but it's more than that. I mean, these these artists that we love become almost foundational to identity. And so there's a more, there's a deeper kind of heartbreak that I think goes on when the work becomes stained by the biography. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Claire Diderot and we're talking about her book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. 
And Claire, in the first half, we spent rather a long time talking about some terrible men. So for some balance in the second half, let's focus on some women. And that's both some monsters in inverted commas, but also perhaps, you know, victims of some of the some of the terrible men. And we should first of all caveat by saying that none of the women you talk about in the book are in any way, shape or form as bad as the terrible men that you talk about in the book. And indeed, you've had to find reasons why society calls women monsters, which are so nowhere near the same scale. However, let us proceed. And I want to talk about Virginia Woolf, I guess, first of all, in the This chapter is in the main about Wagner, but Virginia Woolf is in there as well. But this idea that people behave badly in the past and they were of their time, and as if nobody at their time told these people they were bad. Yeah, I think that I came to the idea of the past in this book with a really open mind. I was very ready to look at the ways in which people did not know when they were, you know, when they were of their era, that what they were saying or doing was rotten. But the more I looked at it, the more it seemed that that wasn't entirely true. And I was looking in particular at Judaism and music by Wagner, uh, which is his essay, his astonishingly upsetting essay, that's just a just a sort of unfurling of his anti-Semitism. And in that essay, he talks about, sorry, I'm veering off from Virginia Woolf, which is what you asked about. But I mean, that uh, was just a segue to, to get women okay, there, honestly, but the point remains the same with Wagner. So let's carry on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there you go. So Wagner, in this essay, he talks about how he is just when he when he's talking about Jewish people, he's only saying what everyone else is thinking. Right. So he's he's sort of he uses actually this phrase liberal bedazzlements. He says that liberal bedazzlements would sort of have us not admit what we really know to be true about Jewish people. And he's in a very Trumpian way pushing against these sort of liberal strictures on him to not say what's really true, which is that we should all hate Jews. And it was fascinating to me to see him so overtly acknowledge the pressures in his own era to not be rotten and then to to continue, you know, saying these terrible, terrible things. And I think that goes against ideas we have about how to look at work of the past. I think we're very comfortable with this idea that in the past they didn't know better. And then that makes a comfortable way to approach work from other eras. But I'm not sure it's entirely true. And again, my point about Virginia Woolf was, of course, that, you know, she was also anti-Semitic and a terrible snob. But lots of people at the time said, that's a bit much and, you know, called her out on it. So Right. You can see even, you know, almost at the same, right, that's a bit much. Or you had Forster who sort of pushed against these ideas, who was almost at the same moment she was uttering these really terrible things. There's a an idea in the book around, obviously, you know, we just went through the, the Me Too era and a lot, a lot of the argument that you heard was that powerful men were being called out and cancelled in that ridiculous phrase for whatever misdeeds. And, you know, a lot of the time this was happening in the court of public opinion on social media. And, you know, was this fair and everything? But there's a really lovely idea in this book about this being almost like a set of scales. And on the one side, you've got a man who's being not silenced, really, because, you know, they they go and moan in all the national, national newspapers and on the TV about how they've been silenced. But, you know, a man <laughs> being brought to account... And at the same time, on the other side of the scale, a woman's voice being raised and amplified. 
Right. I think that this was, you know, this was really one of the hardest parts of the book to write because our conversation around this concept of cancellation has become so almost turning back on itself, curly-cued, recursive, complicated. You know, every word involved in this conversation has taken on double and triple meanings. You know, this idea of cancel culture is so laden with different, almost like it's like sedimentary layers of meaning at this point and political charge. And so stopping and really looking at what is meant by the word cancellation became an important part of this book, where I had to really say what happens when someone is canceled. And I think that this idea that you bring up, that for every every time a man is canceled, what's really happening is someone else has said something terrible that has happened to them. And that we really need to find a way to listen to those voices when they are raised. And why do we need to do that? Not because we're in some kind of punitive kind of form of self-hatred or we want to make men suffer or we want to bring men down. What I realized is that when people speak up, we can find out what's wrong and do better. And to me, that simple realization that we need to listen in order to improve institutionally or culturally or however we're going to do it really clarified a lot of the kind of language and ideas around cancel culture for me. This very idea you bring up of lifting up a voice just so we can hear it and do better. And to finish off, there's a couple of chapters in the book that talk about, and again, this is, I mean, I guess this is much more, you know, the consequences of how women are seen and by society or their place in society is, you know, is sort of setting stone rather than the actual behaviour of these women. But there's a couple of chapters that talk about women that abandon their children in the pursuit of their art. Can we talk about that? Yeah. And the book, as I said earlier, I'm really trying to explore my own experiences of being in this dilemma. And in some ways, I really bring a memoirist eye to that. I've written two memoirs. And because the book is really exploring the subjective point of view, I thought it was important to foreground my own experience. And as a memoir writer, and as someone looking, you know, through a subjective and kind of uh, individual lens at this problem, it was really natural to me to come you know, about halfway through the book to this idea, am I a monster? And start exploring what aspects of myself felt or seemed monstrous to me. And I realized that for me, one of the more difficult parts of making work or of of writing is this feeling that I have to shut the door against my children. I mean, my children are grown now, but I'm talking more about when they were growing up. And this sort of stepping away from nurturing into doing my work. And to me, there felt like there was a lot of complication in that stepping away that had to do with both how people perceived me when I wouldn't be as devoted a mother as I could be, but also how I perceived myself. What were those internalized voices telling me I shouldn't focus on being a great artist? I should only focus on or on trying to be a great artist. I should really focus on being a mother and that identity. And so I used that kind of idea to look at women who had stepped away from nurturing who had stepped in different ways, had stepped more into their role as, you know, as someone trying to be a great artist. And in aid of that, I look at Doris Lessing, who left behind two children in Africa when she came to to London, and Joni Mitchell, who gave a child up for adoption right around the time her singing career was really taking off. And what that meant for them, and almost 
the ways they're judged for that, but almost in writing about them, I sort of turn the idea inside out and I start to take them as role models or almost like parables of female freedom. So I, I, in some ways, like they're framed as, you know, alongside the men as monsters, but in other ways, I'm looking at them to find information about how to be more free as an artist. So I've been talking to Claire Diederer. We've been talking about her book, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, which is out now in the UK from Scepter Books. Claire, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.